0: Preach the word in season. Preach the word out of season. Preach the word with great patience and instruction.
1: Preach with
0: patience. Preach with patience and instruction. The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church we'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak.
1: If you'll turn to Luke chapter 12, uh, we'll be taking a look at uh, a section of, of Scripture uh, that's familiar to a lot of us um, And I want to make sure that we understand uh, what's contained here because it really says a lot about how we're investing our lives. How do you invest your life? And how do you think about the life that God has given you? And uh, this is really what Jesus gets to the heart of in Luke chapter 12. So uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 12 and I'll start at verse 13 for the sake of context. Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13. This is the word of God. So someone in the crowd said to him, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me." But he said to him, "Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you?" Then he said to them, "Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions." And he told them a parable, saying, "The land of a rich man was very productive." And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night, Your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and uh, before this book, which is the inspired word of God. And Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us. Help us to understand what's contained in these pages Help us to understand the the word that is given to us. And help us not to walk away without being impacted by your truth. Help us to make the appropriate changes, corrections in our own hearts and lives. And Father, I pray that you would speak to anyone who is here who does not know your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would really take an account of their own lives and where they're making their investment. Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this message, The Fool and His Money. And uh, some of you recognize that statement from a popular adage that says, The fool and his money are soon what? Soon parted. The fool and his money are soon parted. And uh, we use that to speak of somebody who's a poor planner, uh, somebody who doesn't make wise financial investments, poor choices. And to a certain extent, that's true that the fool and his money are soon parted. In uh, Proverbs 21, in verse 5, it says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to an advantage, but everyone who is hasty surely comes to poverty. And what does that mean? It means that that poverty comes to those who don't carefully plan for using what they have. And those who are diligent uh, usually have an increase of what they have. You know, the a person who looks for shortcuts and get-rich-quick schemes is usually brought to poverty. And again, in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 27 and verse 23 to 24, uh, the Scripture lets us know that we should pay attention to the flocks that we have. Know well the condition of your flocks, you know, your possessions. Pay attention to your herds, for riches are not forever, which is another way to say we need to be wise with what we have when we have it. Uh, the foolish person spends whatever he has. It's like you know, money's like water, you know, it just comes and goes. They they don't retain what they have. They think the good times will just keep rolling in, and they don't take an account of the future. And in that case, again, the fool and his money are soon parted. So the, the scriptures encourage us to be wise about money, but that's not the end of the story. And that's not the end of this story. Because you can be incredibly wise with your finances, incredibly prudent and still be a fool, which is what we're about to find out. Because there is a deception that money carries with it. And that deception is what our Lord wants to warn us about. And if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap. And here's the lie that riches give us, that an abundance of possessions equals an abundance of life. An abundance of possessions equals an abundance of life. And unfortunately for many pulpits across this country from the Preachers of L.A. to the preachers of Baltimore, there's a lot of people who believe that an abundance of possessions equals an abundance of life. If I have more, then my life is more abundant. But that's a lie. And if you buy into that, you can spend the rest of your life investing in the wrong thing. So the question for us this morning is, what are you investing in? Or to put it another way, what kind of treasure are you storing up? Are you making a foolish investment with your life? And that's what this passage is is talking about. In verse 15, Jesus says, beware of every form of greed. And that word that he uses for greed is also translated covetousness, which is a desire to have more. And it doesn't matter how much the greedy person has, he always wants a little bit more, right? Just a little bit more. You know, just a little bit more and I'll be secure. If, If I can just store this away, somehow I'll be prepared for the future. But that's a promise that money can't give you. Money can't give you security. Money can't give that. At the end of verse 17, we have a a man who hoards what he gets, trying to hold on to everything that he has. Verse 17, he says, I have no place to store my crops, you know, but I can't give it away. (laughs) I've got to build bigger barns to store more. I've, I've got to hold on to what I have. Every one of us here is making an investment, and the question is, what kind of investment are you making and where are you storing your greatest treasures? And there's three major major, uh, sections of this text. The first section is what I call the rude interruption in verse 13. Someone said to him, Jesus is speaking and somebody speaks up while Jesus is speaking. A rude interruption. The next is the righteous correction in verse 14 where Jesus responds to the question that was given to him. He spoke back to the man and uh, then the third section is the relevant instruction, uh, where Jesus turns his attention away from the man and back to the crowds, and particularly to his disciples, and it speaks about that in the plural, then he said to them, now he turns his attention away from this one individual, returns his attention back to the crowds that he was teaching in the first place, and gives them some relevant instruction. So that'll give you an idea of where we're heading, but for, for now, uh, let me just quickly set the scene for you. At this time in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was at the height of his popularity. As, as you move through the gospel of, of Luke, uh, you discover that everywhere that Jesus went, he attracted these massive crowds around him. And the, the news about Jesus kept spreading. There was never a man like this. There was nobody like Jesus. And when he went throughout the, the, the cities and preaching uh, the gospel and healing the people, the crowds just, just attracted, flocked around Jesus Christ. And it was shocking how the crowds came around Jesus. He was a respected teacher. The crowds were amazed at the words that came from his mouth. He was a worker of incredible miracles. There was no demon or disease that was safe in the presence of Jesus Christ. And the wonders that Jesus Christ performed were so amazing that men were gripped by fear because of it. Over in chapter chapter 7, there's an instance where Jesus stops a funeral procession, To touch the coffin and raise the corpse to life. And it says in chapter 7 and verse 16 that fear gripped them all. I I would think so. (laughs) You know, if if somebody stops a a funeral procession right in the middle, touches the the, the coffin and the the corpse gets up, I mean, I I can imagine that there's going to be a lot of fear. You know, sometimes you see these uh, phony uh, videos of, uh, you know, people somewhere in another country and, you know, somebody's being raised back to life and nobody runs. (laughs) You know, somebody's getting up from the dead and nobody's screaming for, for, for help. You know, it, it's not real. It, it's, it's phony. This was real. Jesus raised the dead back to life and people were gripped by fear. But as amazing as Jesus was and as popular as he was, he also attracted opposition. Now, The scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day refused to recognize Jesus for who he truly was. They couldn't come to grips with the claims that Jesus made that he was the son of God, that he had the the ability to forgive sins. They were outraged that Jesus didn't follow their own customs. We find out in uh, Mark chapter 15 and verse 10 that they were envious because the people listened to Jesus rather than to them. And then when Jesus began to pick apart their hypocrisy piece by piece, they began to be hostile towards Jesus. And in chapter 12, we find Jesus giving a very important public address and warning people about this opposition, warning people about the Pharisees and what the disciples' response was to them. Look over at chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he goes on to encourage his disciples not to be afraid of making a public confession of him. In verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. I tell you, fear him. Speaking to them about eternal matters. And then he issues this this heavy warning of the danger of denying Christ. And the possibility of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. It says, And I say to, to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be de- denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. I mean, this is this is a hard-hitting sermon these are, these are important matters that Jesus is addressing here. He's preparing his disciples for combat, preparing them for the opposition of the scribes and Pharisees. He, he knows that the heat is about to be turned up and persecution is right at the door. It's around the corner. It's going to be intense. He, he warns people about the possibility of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and never having forgiveness. I mean, this is important truth that Jesus is addressing here. And in the middle of this important address, you have verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, excuse me, teacher, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And you wanna say, What? Like, have, have you been listening to anything that Jesus has been talking about? You know, now here, here you are in the middle of this important address where Jesus is preparing his disciples for persecution, he's warning them about the, the Pharisees and their doctrine. He's warning about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And here this guy in the middle of this important address says, hey, hey, can, can you tell my, my brother to give me some more money? I mean, th- this is ridiculous. This, this, this guy is not hard to figure out. You already know what he's about. He's about the almighty dollar. He wasn't pay, paying attention to the sermon. And, and there's a, a whole sermon just in that, not paying attention to the sermon. But but he could care less about what Jesus said was talking about. He wasn't paying attention at all. He was just waiting for Jesus to pause just long enough so he could sneak his question in. You know, you ever been in a a class like that where, you know, a question comes out of left field and it's like, what what did that have to do with what we were talking about? He's not paying attention. How sad is this? No appetite for the spiritual things that Jesus is speaking of. This guy's only life is bound with the physical life. That's where his life consists. And he can't wait for Jesus to stop long enough to get to the really important stuff. You know, let's talk about the money, Jesus. This is where he's, he's really at. Because he's bought into the lie that an abundance of possessions equals an abundance of life. Lord, like, why are we talking about all this other stuff? I mean, the true life is over here. Like, like how much do I have at the end of the month? You know, who's going to pay these bills? And from what we can gather from this account, we know that there's at least two brothers. According to Deuteronomy 21, the firstborn son received two-thirds of the father's inheritance. The secondborn son received one-third of the father's inheritance. During this time, the responsibility of dividing up the inheritance belonged to the firstborn son. So it's pretty safe to assume that this is not the firstborn son who has the complaint. Because the firstborn son would have been in control of the money. This has to be the secondborn or somebody else down the line. And he's like, hey, can you, can you tell my older brother to, to get on with it? You know, I'm, I'm waiting for this, this, this windfall to come. I, I, I was counting on this. No other details. He just wants Jesus to make a quick decision. Can you, can you just tell him to divide it up? It's not even in the form of a question. It's actually in the form of a command. As he's speaking to Jesus, he doesn't say, teacher, you know, will you, may you, you know, could you please? No, it's tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. As I said, Jesus was a, a popular teacher. And somehow he thinks if I can get Jesus, who is the authority to tell my brother what to do, he'll do it. So most likely the, the, the older brother is standing right there. So, hey, Jesus, right here. He's right here. Can you, can you tell him for me, Please. Tell him to divide the family inheritance with me. If I can get Jesus to agree with me, we've got it all settled and taken care of. But look at how Jesus responds to him in the next verse. This is the righteous correction. You have the the, the rude interruption, and here you have the, the righteous correction. Look at verse 14. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And when he, he uses this term man, it's... Uh, it's likely used to show that, that I have no relationship with you. <laughs> now, who, who are you, buddy? Man, like, what, what are you coming to me about this for? You, you're a stranger to me. And Jesus won't allow this guy to take advantage of his authority. You're trying to use my authority for your own selfish ends. All, all you want me to do is make this quick decision so it can fall in your favor. But, but who appointed me a, a judge or an arbitrator over you? Basically, he's saying, what do I have to do with that? What do I have to do with that? And this is a strange response from, from Jesus in, in a way because rabbis often pass judgment. And Jesus was a teacher. According to, to Jewish customs, uh, rabbis often settled disputes. You know, we even see a preview of this back in uh, Exodus chapter 18 when Israel had disputes they'd bring it to the, to the leadership, right? You know, bring it to, to Moses. And Moses found elders who could make decisions for him. So so Jesus might have been expected to give a judgment here. I mean, he knows the difference between right and wrong. And Jesus, out of all people who have ever been on this planet, is qualified to judge, right? I mean, it's a strange response in a way because of course Jesus has the right to judge. He he is the judge. John 5.22 says that all judgment has been appointed by the Father to the Son. And one day Jesus will judge everybody. Every thought, every intent of your heart, Jesus will judge one day. But that would be to miss the point of what Jesus is trying to say here. Christ could have rendered a, a verdict about, you know, who gets what and, you know, portioning out the, the the inheritance. But that's not why Jesus was here now. He wasn't here to be the judge now. He wasn't here to be some kind of civil administrator now. And when it came to the distribution of of wealth and economics, Christ said, that's that's not my concern right now. You know, some people would have you believe that at the top of Jesus' priorities is, you know, dividing up economic wealth and, you know, trying to make sure he distributes everything uh, the way that we would like. But that is not Jesus' priority. Jesus did not come to tell us how wealth is to be distributed, regardless of what some people might want to tell you. But when it came to spiritual matters, matters of the heart, matters of the soul, Jesus did not hesitate for a second to render a judgment. So he refuses to be brought in to the struggle about wealth and who gets what. He says, if, if you, if you really want to hear from me, you're you're coming to hear from me, uh, let me tell you what I need to say here. Well, why don't you, why don't you open up your ears for the first time and listen? Verse 15. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. You want me to to give you a judgment? I'll give you a judgment. You're greedy. you're greedy. That's the judgment. You want to hear from me? You want to hear from the judge? That's what the judge has to say. You are greedy. And he turns to the rest of the crowd and says, beware of this. Watch out for this. And he redirects the attention back to the crowds that he was teaching in the first place. And even though he was interrupted, he wasn't put off track. He was on a divine appointment. He says, let's just go on to the next subject. And here are three points of this instruction, this relevant instruction. In verse 15, he issues the the warning, this this peril, and verses 16 to 20 illustrates it with this parable, and in verse 21, he gives the point of the parable. So it's the, the peril, the parable, and the point. So this is the peril or the danger that Christ warns us about. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. As I said, Christ didn't hesitate to give a spiritual judgment, and he cuts straight to the heart with the statement, you're greedy. Beware of greed. The younger brother, in this case, was bold enough to make a statement in front of these crowds. And Christ is bold enough to say that I'm going to tell you what your problem is. And there's more going on than what he wanted to happen to, to dear old dad's estate. That wasn't the issue. That wasn't the issue. The issue was with his heart. And Christ warns his disciples. He says, beware. It's a word that means to look out. Watch out. It's a word for for danger. It's the same word that he used for the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Beware. Watch out for that. He says, beware of them. They lead people away from Christ in the case of the Pharisees. And he says, beware of greed because that will lead you away from me as well. And what's the danger? Look at at what he says. For, why why are we to beware? Why are we to be on our guard? For... Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Explanatory clause here. Let me me tell you why I'm warning you against this. Because your life does not consist in what you have. And that's the lie that riches give you, that your life consists in what you have. And I believe Christ is not just talking about physical existence in this life only. That would be the, the Greek word bios for just the physical life. He's talking about there's, there's more to that, more life. There, there, there's, there's a real life, a quality of life. And that, that greater quality of life does not just sit in the stuff. It's about more than what you have. Like I said, some people think they're safe because they, they have something stored away. You know, I'm, I'm secure. Some people are tempted to think that they have it good because of what they have and that they're really living. But that's not real life. Why don't you uh, flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, just real quick. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon, if you you might remember, was uh, one of the richest, if not the richest, of all kings of Israel. And uh, we find that Solomon gave his heart to pursue after every pleasure under the sun. Whatever he wanted, he could have. And look what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 in verses 10 and 11. Actually, I'll start at verse 9. So, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. If if you were to have everything that you could possibly imagine, no limits, anything that I want, I could have it. Any pleasure of my heart, I could have it. It's like chasing after the wind, he says, absolutely meaningless. And after you've exerted all of your, your energy to catch up with it, and you fall flat on your face from exhaustion, there's nothing left. He says it's like chasing after the wind. You know, you ever put your hands outside of the, the window when you're, you're driving and, you know, feels a lot of pressure on that, but as soon as you close your hand, it's gone. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. You know, the, the, the wind that could, you know, push sailboats across the ocean, but you, you hold out your hand and try to grab it, it's, you can't get it. It seems so powerful, but you can't hold on to it. He says that's what riches are. When you get down to the root of it, people who are greedy don't really love the the money. It's not like they just love, you know, rolling around in green paper. It's because uh, money is buying power. It means I can have what I want when I want it. That's what people want. I want what I want when I want it. But it's not real life. Jesus says in John 10 and verse 10, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, more abundantly. And too many Christians are looking for the same things that the world is searching after. They're looking for health and wealth and prosperity and worldly pleasures. And the world says, well, that's, that's what I want. <laughs> no, as, as Christians, we're to want something that's greater than what the world wants. And then Jesus gives the parable. Familiar parable. Let's take a, a look at it again. Because Jesus wants to illustrate his, his point. And he uses this parable. Uh, We've looked at parables before back in Matthew uh, 13. You know, the parable comes from a para, besides, and bole, which means to throw, to lay two things alongside of one another, to make a a point, to make a comparison, to tell an earthly story that has a heavenly point. And Jesus tells them this, this parable. Look at verse 16. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Here's a story about a guy who's already rich and he gets more. And remember that Jesus is just going to illustrate what he's Said back in verse 15 that even when one has an abundance, his life does not consist in his possessions. So Jesus describes somebody who had an abundance. In verse 16, it says that this man was already rich. He already started off as rich, the land of a rich man. But then in addition to him being rich, his land was even extra productive. He owns a, a lot of land. He owns barns and this 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 land produced even more than he could imagine. When it talks about the, the land of a, a rich man was very productive, not that word for uh, being very productive, it's, uh, it's from the Greek word euphoreo. Uh, we get our English word euphoria from it, which means joy, excitement, just you know, ecstatic joy. You know, this, this guy's land brought him great joy. He just enjoyed all the prosperity that he had. He was so euphoric over this. I mean, this... Year was so good that he didn't have enough place to store what he produced. Over the top crop. You say, how good was it? It was so good that he had enough to fund a building project to build bigger barns. It was good enough, verse 19 lets us know, to retire for the rest of his life. Look at verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Like, like, I don't have to work for the next, who knows how many years. This is so great. I, I don't have a need for anything. Many years to come. I can retire off of this kind of crap. Eat, drink, be merry. The only problem is, how do I store everything? Remember, this rich guy didn't get rich by making poor decisions, so he has to think it through. You know, my current units are already filled. You know, I don't want to build... Out, you know, but I can build up. I can make my current units bigger. I can store it all. I can keep it all. And this guy is extremely consumed with his own self gratification. Look again at verse 17. He's reasoning with himself. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my craps? Why is he talking to himself? Because apparently he has nobody else to talk to. <laughs> Like, this guy's greed just got rid of everybody. Talking to himself. Self, <laughs> what, what will I do? He's congratulating himself. Verse nine, 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. He's got to talk to himself. I, got, I mean, I got to have some kind of company, so you talk to yourself. And you can just picture this guy looking in the mirror, you know, kind of like a Nebuchadnezzar in, in Babylon. You know, is not this Babylon the great that I have built by my own power, for my own glory, and my own majesty. You know, you can just imagine him just looking over his, his barns. And it's like, Is, isn't this the, the land that I have built up? Look at how productive this land was. I mean, just pat yourself on the back, you know. And there's nothing wrong with making money. You know, there's, there's no indication that he was dishonest about it. He didn't do anything illegal. What was wrong with his attitude What was wrong with his attitude was that he trusted in his money. The right attitude would have been to be thankful, to recognize that everything comes as a gracious gift from the hands of God, right? Psalm 147 verse 8 says, He who covers the heavens with the clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow. I mean, the the right response would have been, Lord, you're the one that gives me all these things. God, this is not about me. God, I I thank you for, for the blessings that you gave me. The right action would have been to share would have been to bless God. It would have been to share. First Timothy chapter six says, "Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy." Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. That's not what this guy's thinking about. He's not thinking about thanking God, blessing others, you know, love to God, love to others, you know, the greatest two commandments Jesus spoke about. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about himself. And look at this great contrast here between what he says to himself, you know, congratulating himself, soul, you have many goods for many years, soul, you can take your ease, many years you have, soul, but look at what God said, God said to him, you fool. You know, he's congratulating himself about how how good it's been. And God says, I'm going to let you know how bad it really is. You fool. This very night, you don't have years. You don't have a day. This night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you've prepared? There's a contrast between what he thought about himself and what God thought about him. His estimation of himself was that he... Made it out good. God's estimation was that you're a fool. Mindless one is what it means. There's a contrast between what the rich man anticipated and what God knew what was going to happen. He thought he had years. God says, you don't have a day. There's a contrast between who the rich man thought the treasures were for and who God says the treasures were for. He thought this was for himself. And God says, who's it going to belong to now? <laughs> it's not for you. Ecclesiastes two eighteen and 19 says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor which I had labored for under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who comes after me, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. You have no control over what happens to what you have after you leave this earth, regardless of what kind of will you make up. And this is exactly what Christ is talking about. Christ is saying, who cares? (laughs) Who cares where the stuff goes? You know, you're you're out here worried about, you know, who gets what, and who's going to divide up what? It's not... That's not my concern. That's not my greatest concern. My greatest concern is about what comes after this life. That's the greatest concern. Why was he a fool? He was, was he a fool because he didn't plan for the future? No. He was a fool because he didn't plan out far enough. He was planning for this life only. And he was a fool because he didn't realize that the barns can only preserve what you have here. You need a different kind of storage unit to preserve what's In the afterlife, right? The the barns that you have here aren't going to store that kind of treasure. And he was a fool because he left God out of it. God is totally out of mind, out of the picture. Over in uh, James chapter four, if you want to flip over there real quick, James chapter four, it's one of my favorite passages to turn to just as I think about life and think about the, really the, the kind of um, attention we're to give to the, to the Lord in every decision that we make. James chapter 4, look at verse 13. So it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. He left the Lord out of it. It's only as the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, I'll maybe build a barn if he allows me to. I'll seek him for what I should do. Left the Lord out of it. And now we come to the Lord's final instruction, and here's the point of all that he's been saying back in Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 21. He said, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the point. That's the point. So is the man. What does he mean, so is the man? It's obvious what he means. Anybody who lives like this is a what? Is a fool. That's what he just said about the man, right? Right? He called him a fool, and he says, so is the man who is not rich toward God. You're just like this man. You're, you're not looking far enough out into the future. You're, you're leaving God out of your plans. You're pursuing riches in this life instead of the next life, and you're not rich toward God. He says you're a fool. If you're not thinking about where your primary investment is, are you storing your treasures in heaven? How do you become rich towards God? You invest in, in God's service. Talked about our missionaries coming in. You, you invest in, in things that pertain to the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8 says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You work towards the, the kingdom of God. Jim Elliott, a missionary to the Akka Indians, said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, right? We work towards what's eternal, the eternal souls of of men. You know, that's what I'm going to invest in, something that's going to last. Going to invest in acts of service. That's what I'll invest my life in. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42 says, whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cold cup of water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. He'll have an eternal reward. Those who serve others with a, a willing and a, and a grateful heart, a, a cheerful heart, who do it as unto the Lord, they receive a reward from that. A reward. Prayer, fasting. Matthew 6 speaks of prayer and fasting, and then it adds this word, these words. Verse 18 of chapter 6, The Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's a reward that comes from coming before the Lord in prayer. You invest in God's service. Number two, you invest in, in God's saints. Invest in God's saints. Giving to, to the poor in Luke chapter 12 and verse 33 says, Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You, you invest in, in people, you invest in, in eternal souls. Listen to this, there's an emperor named Decius who ordered everyone in the Roman Empire to perform a a sacrifice to the Roman gods and the well-being of the emperor who required this kind of sacrifice. And listen to this account. It says, in the days of the terrible Decian persecution in Rome, the Roman authorities broke into a Christian church. They were out to loot the treasures which they believed the church to possess, The Roman prefect demanded from Laurentius, the deacon, show me your treasures at once. They break into the church and say, show me your treasures at once. And Laurentius pointed at the widows and orphans who were being fed, the sick who were being nursed and the poor and those who were being supplied. And he said, these, these are the treasures of the church. These are the treasures of the church. He invested in people. Churches always believe that what we keep we lose and what we spend we have if we're spending it in the the right place. And we also invest in God's salvation. We invest in God's service, we invest in God's saints, and we invest in God's salvation. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus spoke another parable, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding a pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you know what that's talking about? Matthew chapter 13, this parable of the the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, it's a picture of salvation, and that, that we would be willing to give up anything to make sure that we're in the kingdom of God, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, that if anyone would come after me you want to come after me you really want to make sure that you belong in in my kingdom this is what jesus said to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me you must be willing to to give up your pursuit of this life only and say "I'm, i'm willing to lay everything down before you because i know that your kingdom is eternal It's like the the thief on the cross who turned to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. (laughs) Like, Like the kingdom ahead, that's what everything should be invested in. That's the kingdom to come, not the kingdom that's now, the kingdom that is. And this is what this man, whoever he was, who came to ask Jesus the question, totally missed out on. It was all about now, the here and now. Didn't invest in eternity was considered, as Jesus said, you fool. You fool. You have no idea when your life will be required of you. My question for you is, are you here and have you truly invested in what's to come? Have you thought far out enough in advance or are you only concerned about this life only? And where are your greatest treasures? Where are your greatest treasures? Are you investing in eternity? Are you investing in service to God? Are you investing in God's saints? And if you're not a believer, have you, have you placed everything, willing to sell everything for the eternal salvation that only God can provide? Those are the treasures that can't be taken away from you. And that's where all of us should be directing our lives towards. Amen? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this text. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, uh, help us to, to truly understand what it means to invest in eternity. My Father, as we think about this life, it is so fleeting, as James says, that our life is like a vapor. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow, and Father, none of us would, would wish that we spent more time on ourselves when we're breathing our last. We would have wished that we spent more time focusing on the things that are eternal. So Father, I pray that that would be true of us. And Father, that you would not allow us to walk out of fear, Lord, and, and not seriously ponder our life. We've been given our life for a reason. And one day we'll have to present that life back to you. And Father, I pray that we're not like the the man who took his talent and buried it in the sand and had nothing to offer back to you on that final day. Father, I pray that we're investing in eternity and that we're people who are heavenly minded. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been
0: listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.